Good morning once again, and a special welcome to the moms who are here with us. We have some flowers for you on your way out, so if you are a mom, please stop at the welcome table and grab a flower on your way out. It is the time of year when flowers triple in price, and so we are glad to participate in this social construct. Just kidding. We really do appreciate all of you and praise God for you. So please, it's just a small way we can show appreciation as a church. So remember to grab one of those on your way out. Well, this morning, I uh, am continuing in our series of the last three books of the Old Testament. So we started the book of Haggai in September and have been working through since then. And I haven't been in the pulpit now for a couple weeks. We've had some uh, guest speakers and so on. But three weeks ago, we looked at Malachi 3, 6 to 12, and we did not have time to deal with everything that was there. So today, we're going to kind of part two that passage, and we're going to look at that again. But I want to spend most of our time applying what we see in Malachi 3 to our day and kind of finish answering some questions that we weren't able to answer previously. But as I was thinking about coming to the end of this series... We're going to end Malachi in two weeks, Lord willing. And I was just thinking back, especially because I wasn't in the pulpit the last couple weeks, but what has been the main encouragement for me in in these books? They're not very commonly known books, and one of the reasons that I wanted to preach to them was because I just hadn't spent a lot of time in them. And so as I think back about what was the main point of emphasis I think the main encouragement for me came in the truth of seeing God is faithful to his word. This has been so clearly demonstrated in these books. Everything that God has said, everything he has promised, everything that he has covenanted to do, he will do. No exceptions. And we've seen this over and over in these books. The faithlessness of his people doesn't change him. The disobedience of his people doesn't change him. It doesn't cause him to throw up his hands and say, oh my word, for the last time, he is faithful to do everything that he has promised to do. And that's just been such an encouragement to me because we live in a time where things are very unstable. Things are always changing. When's the last time you made a plan and it went exactly how you planned it to go? Anybody? No. It just doesn't happen. But with God, everything he promises happens. Isn't that great? Because then as we read the rest of the Bible, even what Brad just read this morning in the exhortation, we can have total confidence that what God says he'll do. It's just been such such a tremendous encouragement for me in this book. So this morning, we're going to look very briefly at Malachi 3, at the text we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and then I want to finish explaining the implications for these passages for us. There's the question that we raised last time because Malachi 3 deals with the issue of the tithe, right? We saw that three weeks ago. And so the question that I raised at the end of the last message was, okay, so you and I living this side of the cross under the new covenant established in Jesus' blood, are we obligated under the law to do what Malachi 3 says? Or maybe a better way to ask the question would be, when it comes to the motivation for our generosity, are we motivated by the law or by the grace of God? 
And that's kind of the question I want to answer this morning. And so I invite you to pray with me. We're going to turn to Malachi 3 and just take a couple of highlights there. But let's pause and ask that the Lord would be with us as we look at his word this morning. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come to you now as your children who are in need. And we need from you this morning the help of your spirit to open our understanding, to allow us to see what is in your word clearly. We don't want to bring our own experience or presupposition or ideas we have and lay that over your word and try to bring your word into conformity with our thinking. Rather, God, change our hearts, change our minds, help us to submit ourselves to you in your word. We lack the wisdom necessary to really know what you are saying, so please Give us that, dear Lord. And James, you tell us, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, and you will give generously. And so, Father, we ask for it now. Guard my mouth. I, I don't want to say things that are untrue or unhelpful. And I want to be a clear representation of your word. So, Father, please do that work by your Spirit among us this morning. And in everything, in our singing, in our preaching, in the hearing of the word, May Jesus Christ be praised. And it's in his name that I pray now. Amen. Amen. Well, go ahead and open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 3. We're going to jump to the New Testament in a few minutes. But for now, that's where I want you to be so that you can follow along and see what I'm saying as sort of a reminder from a few weeks ago. So three weeks ago, when we looked at verses 6 through 12, we dealt with much of the immediate context we dealt with the situation that had prompted God to have to indict his people for stealing from him. And we had to take a few minutes and explain why is it that when God's people withhold something from God, God calls it robbery. Why is it robbing God to withhold something from God? And we used that opportunity to explain something that I call God's universal ownership of all things. The fact that God as creator has the right to everything in heaven and on earth. Not because he took it from someone else, but because he is the one who created all things. And we looked at many, many passages that demonstrated this reality that God does indeed own everything. Therefore, when his people withhold from him what is rightfully his, he can justly and rightly call it robbery because it belongs to him anyways. And so we looked at this passage and we saw that the result of the people withholding from God is that their livelihood was affected. Their crops were not producing. They were under a curse. So if you look at chapter 3, verse 9, God says, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. But God doesn't just leave his people there and say, okay, well, you blew it for the last time. Hope you guys figure this mess out. He gives them instruction for how they can return to him, which has been the theme of all three of these books, right? So in verse 10 of chapter 3, you can follow along, read this. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down a blessing until there is no more need. 
I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. So we, we pointed out that the blessing of God that he refers to here in verse 10 is not necessarily monetary wealth, right? We tend to kind of shape our categories of thinking off of what we know or what we have experienced. But this text is not telling us that God is going to dump buckets of money on his people if they will simply be faithful to him by giving a tithe. His promise is that he will, what? Look at the end of verse 10. I will open the window of heaven and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. The blessing of God is not to make you rich. It is to meet your needs. Now that might come in a variety of forms, right? That might be that he preserves the life of your vehicle so you don't have to replace it right away. It could be that he keeps your appliances going so that you don't have to expend a bunch of resources. It might not always be an increase in your portfolio, but God will meet all of your needs. And my caution here was and still is and Lord willing evermore shall be that we do not turn God into a vending machine. Remember that phrase? Where we take our obedience and we put that coin of obedience in and then God is somehow obligated to dispense financial wealth to us. Nowhere in the Bible is that kind of thinking taught or exampled. And the big problem with that is not even the financial aspect. The problem with that is that we have reduced a relationship to God to a transaction. Where we say, okay, I did what I'm supposed to do. Now you are obligated to do what I think you should do. Nowhere in the Bible do we see that. Rather, <clears throat> we ought to see the blessing of God in relation to his covenant-keeping character. What does God do in a covenant? He promises blessing for obedience, punishment for disobedience. So as God's people obey the Lord, as we do what he has commanded us to do, he will, because of the covenant, respond in blessing. But be careful that we don't misidentify what that blessing means. But now we're still confronted with the question, right? As we work through Malachi 3, what does that mean for you and I? Because we went back to Leviticus 27 and we saw that the tithe, the tithe just means a tenth, 10%. We saw that this was commanded in the law of Moses. God, through Moses, says to his people, this is how you obey me, this is how you honor me, is that you give 10% of everything you have to the work of the Lord, to the priests in the temple. We, we covered all of this. And actually, if you add up everything that the Israelites were required to give, it was more like 25% of what they had. But we're just dealing with the tithe because that's what Malachi deals with. So this issue wasn't just a preference thing for the people. They did not sit down at the end of the month and say, okay, what do we have left here? What, what can we give to the Lord? This was a matter of law-keeping for the people of Israel in this time. So the question becomes, as we have worked through these last three books of the Old Testament, we have applied these things in various ways to the way that we live our life, so what do we do with this? What do we do with a text that seems to say, <clears throat> if you want to obey God, 
you just give your 10%. And I'm, I'm changing the question just a little bit to say what ought to motivate us when it comes to stewardship, management, generosity. What is it that motivates the people of God to be generous? Is it law or is it grace? And I just, as a way of clarifying, the law of God was given for the good of his people. Do you believe that? That God's law was given to set them apart. It was given to communicate God's righteous requirement, what he expected of his people, what he demanded as a holy God. And so when you hear me now talking about our motivation coming from grace rather than from law, do not hear me trying to pit the law against the grace of God. They both come from God. They are both part of the redemptive process of God's people. They are for our good so that we can grow more and more into the image of the people that God wants us to be. So don't hear me try to make some kind of, well, the God of the Old Testament was real grumpy and it was law and it was obedience and it was duty and now nice Jesus comes along in the New Testament we can finally be freed of that law garbage. It's not the case. God gave the law for the good of his people. But we relate to it differently as those who live on this side of the cross. This is, this is the issue that I want to clear up for us this morning, or at least give you some categories for how to think about what obedience looks like for us in this area. As Christians who live under the new covenant established in Jesus' blood, <clears throat> would it be right for us to go back to Leviticus 27 and say, well, God commanded that we give 10% and I want to obey the law and so I'm going to give my 10% and then, woo, I'm done. I, I did the requirement. That's all I need to do. Is that right? Or if we say, ah, old covenant, we don't live under that anymore. I don't have to give anything because I'm free from the law. Praise God. Both of those ways of thinking are wrong. Then what is the right way? And that's what we have to do this morning. It comes down to the motivation. Now, part of the glory of the new covenant, we talk about that a lot, and we've explained what that means in the past. I'm not going to spend a lot of time. But part of the glory of the new covenant is that Jesus has fulfilled the requirement of the law. So now his people, who are united to him by faith, are freed from the obligation of perfect law-keeping as it relates to our standing before God. We do not obey the law so that God will approve of us. Christ did that for you. And if you are united to him by faith, you are freed in that sense from the duty of law-keeping because Jesus did that. And if you are united to him by faith, if you turn away from your sin, cast yourself upon him, he says, I have obeyed on your behalf and I translate my obedience to you. That's what Jesus did. That's the beauty of the new covenant. It's not that the law is somehow now irrelevant when we come to the time of Christ. Rather, we see that it is because Jesus obeyed for us, because he succeeded where we couldn't, because he perfectly mediates a better covenant, you and I actually have hope of living a life that's pleasing to God. 
Can you imagine if your only hope, the source of your hope, came from your ability to please God through your actions? What a hopeless system that would be. Can you know yourself? You know how rotten you are to the core. You know the sin that you struggle with. Can you imagine if the requirement of God, if his pleasure towards you was dependent upon your ability to please him? Hopeless. But thanks be to God, Christ obeyed for you. Oh, isn't that good news? That is such good news. And so now as we relate to the law, we can look at it differently. Let me give you two examples from the New Testament. Romans 8, verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. What does that mean, weakened by the flesh? It means human involvement and interaction with the law weakened it because we don't have the ability to keep it. So Paul says God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own Son In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Now here's the purpose statement, verse 4. In order that, this is such good news, in order that the righteous requirement of the law, what requirement of the law? Righteous, it's good. The righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. Everything that must be done to be right with God has been done by Christ. Everything. And when you trust in him, his obedience is transferred to you. Still haven't answered that question, have we? I'm trying to build up so that we have categories and context for what I'm going to explain here in a moment. The gospel of the grace of God does not nullify the law, it completes it and gives us hope for living a life that is pleasing to God as regards the law. So, with this in mind, I invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read two passages and what I want you to listen for now is characteristics or markers or whatever word you want to use, but what are some of the characteristics of new covenant generosity. So we've seen pretty clearly that the law commanded that the people of God give 10% as an act of obedience. And now that we come to the new covenant, I want you to listen now. Listen to these texts, and I want you to read along so you can see it. What are some characteristics of new covenant stewardship? So I'm going to read these, make a couple comments, and then we will apply to our church. So let's start in 2 Corinthians 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 Verses 1 through 7. Paul says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then, by the will of God, to us. Now accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in in faith, 
in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in your love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. So the first thing I want to point out, first characteristic, is that giving, stewardship, managing God's resources, is a means of grace. Giving is a means of grace. Do you know what means of grace means? What, what is that phrase? We, we've used it before. Do you know what that means? Here's my definition. A means of grace is something that God instructs us to do that allows us to experience or see his grace in a unique way. It's something that God instructs us through his word to engage in that gives us an opportunity to experience or see his grace uniquely. Here's a couple examples. We would say, <coughs> excuse me, that communion is a means of grace. Why? Because when we come to the table, Paul says we participate in the body and the blood of Jesus. We are reminded of God's grace that was extended to us through Christ, that he sends Jesus to shed his own blood so that you and I can have forgiveness of sin. We are reminded that it is through repentance and faith in Jesus that we have eternal life. And in those senses, we view the grace of God differently, uniquely, in a special way. That's a means of grace. It gives us grace. Do you see what I'm saying? Not in a salvific way, not as as it regards salvation, but in a way of experiencing the goodness of God. We would say the same thing about corporate worship, hospitality, um, prayer, Bible reading. All of these things could be means of grace in which we experience or see the grace of God. And from this text in 2 Corinthians 8, I'm saying that in addition to the things that I just mentioned, giving is also a means of grace. It's an opportunity for us to see a unique part of the grace of God that he has given to us. I get that from a couple places in the text. First of all, as Paul starts the section in verse 1, he's, he lays the overarching theme as the grace of God that has been given. So this whole section has to do with the grace of God. And then towards the end in verse uh, Six, as he's talking about Titus, notice what he says. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. What is that? Well, I think we get a hint when we keep reading verse 7. But as you excel in everything, faith, speech, and knowledge, and all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. This refers back to everything he said in verses 1 to 5 about the Macedonians, about their giving, about their generosity. He says, you guys are getting the doctrine thing. You're, you're doing this. You're excelling in, in faith and in love and in knowledge. But make sure you don't neglect this act of grace. Generosity. So giving, I'm saying, is a means of grace. Second thing to notice from this passage is that generosity is not limited to your level of income. Generosity is not limited to your level of income. Look at verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy, not their abundance of money, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. 
the mistake that so many people make when thinking about stewardship or generosity or giving. I mean, not even just in a Christian context, but in general, the mistake that is made, many people think, man, if I just had more money, then I could be generous. If I just got that promotion, if I just got a raise, if I could just have a little bit more, then I could, oh man, I could bless the socks off someone then. Do you know what's really being said when somebody says that? I just want to make sure this isn't going to affect me. I just want to make sure I have enough to maintain my level of living. And, and then I, I would, I, oh yeah, I would, I'd be really willing to, to be generous then. That's not the example we see here. The generosity of these Macedonians was not limited to their level of income. Right? This text teaches us that they gave sacrificially. It cost them something. They gave up something to be generous. It doesn't say any number. You notice that? It doesn't say any percentage. It doesn't say any dollar amount. They were not wealthy according to the world's standards. In fact, Paul uses the phrase extreme poverty. And yet, they gave because the law commanded them to. Is that what's there? No. They gave because the grace of God had come to them. The gospel had come to Macedonia. And they had repented of their sins, turned to Christ. They had been the recipient of the grace and generosity of God. Therefore, they gave the grace and the generosity of God. It's not limited to their income. I just want to encourage us to be really careful that we don't set these kind of standards to say, well, it's, if, I just, if I get this much, then I'll, then I'll be generous. This is not, that's not the case. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be a Christian to be generous. So, giving is a means of grace. It allows us to see and experience the grace of God in a unique way, and it is not limited or restrained by income. Next, just turn the page, one page over to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians 9, and we're going to start in verse 6. Now, Paul is still in the same discussion. He hasn't left this is still his instruction to the church about their uh, generosity, their giving, the example set. So here's what he says, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now the point is this. So here's his, here's his summary. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. There's that grace again that we're dealing with. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, here he quotes from the Psalms, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So if we consider the question of motivation or obligation, however you want to frame that, it's kind of the same question. What does this passage tell us? Is it a matter of duty? Is it a matter of obligation? Is it check the box, do the minimum, whew, I'm good. I don't think so. 
right? What, what is the text telling us? Look at verse seven. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. <clears throat> Begrudging obedience to the law, the kind of uh, digging your heels in, set your jaw, I'm gonna do it and I'm gonna do it because it's commanded of me. That's begrudging. That's, that's sour. That's not freely. That's obligation if I've ever heard of it, right? And notice the same promise from Malachi 3, the promise that God in response to the faithfulness of his people would meet their needs, he would be faithful to them. That same promise is also here in 2 Corinthians. Verse 8, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Or verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. It's almost like the same God who wrote the Old Testament wrote the New Testament. Well, that's weird, huh? Yeah. Okay, one last comment before we move on to apply these texts. Look at verse 11. 2 Corinthians 9, 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Now, I pointed out earlier that generosity is not limited by the amount of income. And sometimes we tend in these conversations to focus on, well, even if you don't have much, even if you do have very little, you, you still need to, and that's true, right? It's, it's not dependent on that. But what if God has entrusted you with a lot? What if God has been generous to you in ways concerning finance and stewardship? What should you do? How should you think about this in terms of that? I think verse 11 answers that question, right? If God has been generous with you, it is so that you can be generous with others. That's what verse 11 says. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. So these are just some of the characteristics of generosity that is fueled not by just duty and command, but fueled by the grace of God. And I would add that any time we think about generosity, whether this is financial, whether this is your time, whether this is your other resources, the things that you have, it is always in response to what God has done for us. Always. You know, last week when Kevin was here and he talked about forgiveness and how we are able to forgive others because God has forgiven us, this is really the same principle or very similar. We are able to be generous with others because God has been generous with us. It's not about the amount. It's about the motivation of your heart as you sit down and say, Lord, everything belongs to you. I'm just shuffling pieces around down here. Give me faithfulness. Give me wisdom. So given these characteristics, how do we answer the question? What should motivate our generosity as Christians? Is it duty to the law? Do you give because you're afraid of breaking God's law? Do you not give because you think, yeah, that was old covenant, we don't need to do that anymore? I'm going to answer in the most frustrating way I can for you and say that the answer is yes and no. <laughs> it's not wrong to be motivated by what God's word tells us, right? And if, if you find yourself in a position where, where 10% is the number that you feel God's calling you to do, then praise God, do that. Do it freely from the heart. But be careful 
that we don't turn the tithe into a kind of Pharisee thing where we just go through the motion, do the duty. I did the bare minimum required. Now I don't have to do anything else. Because you remember, we just saw from Romans 8, God has freed us through Christ from obligation to the law. But did you know that when you are freed from the law, you become enslaved to Christ? Did you know that? You are a slave of Christ. Yes, you've been freed from the law to be bound to Jesus. And he may very well call you to something way beyond what the minimum requirement is. But you are bound to him. You are his slave to do his will. There's an overall principle at work here, isn't there? And it really does not have to do with the amount. It doesn't have to do with dollar amounts or percentages. If There's, there's wisdom, I guess. I'm, I'm trying to be careful here because I don't want to come across as, well, the pastor's telling us we have to give money. Did you know that in three years, this is the first time we've talked about this because it came up in the text? God has been so gracious to us. This is not a sermon trying to get you to give more money. I am trying to teach you from the word of God what God expects from us. God has been so generous to us. So don't hear this as some kind of, oh brother, we went to church and the pastor's trying to wring our pockets dry. That is not the case. God takes care of that. I'm trying to help me and you understand what does it mean to live faithfully to God. So let's just, a couple of points of application here. You must include in any of these financial, generosity, stewardship conversations the idea of wisdom, okay? If you say, oh, I'm just, I'm so thankful for what God has done, I'm going to give 50% of my income to the Lord. And as a result of that, you end up unable to take care of your family, you can't afford to feed your kids, you missed your mortgage payments, but hey, you're given to God. Do you think that's good stewardship? So my point is that figure out, that's what Paul's whole point, I think, in chapter 9 was, each one must decide what you are going to give. If it's 10%, praise God and rejoice over that. If it's less, then praise God and rejoice over that. And if you find yourself in a position where you say, man, I just, I don't know how in the world we could possibly even get close to giving 10% of our income. You know what my advice to you is? Give what you can. And find an older, more mature Christian who can help you set up a plan. We're not trying to shoot for 10%. That's not the goal. Generosity is the goal, whatever that looks like for your life. But there are so many saints in this congregation who have walked with the Lord for decades who can help some of us who are younger figure out, okay, what does wisdom say in this conversation? What does it mean to honor the Lord with our finances? And I just encourage you, take advantage of that. God has brought really good people to this church. It's been a huge blessing to me, and I want it to be a blessing to you. So here we go. I want to close by applying this kind of generosity to the situation that we are in as a church right now. So if you aren't familiar with this, we have been presented the opportunity to purchase this facility, to make this our permanent home here as Grace Bible Church. And I want to give you an encouragement and a challenge as we close. First, an encouragement. As I mentioned before, I am so thankful to God for this congregation. We have never gone without what we've needed. 
in the two and a half years that we've been a church, we've been able to distribute nearly $20,000 of benevolence help because of your faithful giving. We've been able to support missionaries who are taking the gospel to places that it is not preached right now. We've been able to engage in Bible translation to get the Bible into languages that it is not translated into. We have been able to continually meet for worship, to pay the rent, to do all, and that's all the grace of God coming through you. So praise God. And I want you to be encouraged. God meets all of our needs. Now, as we move into this new era, this new season of ministry, there will, of course, be opportunities for us to be generous. There will be things on the building, the furnace will break, the lights will go out, all of those kinds of things, but don't stress about that. Your heavenly Father knows what we need, and he'll provide like he always has. So I want to encourage you in the, in the area of financial stewardship that God has done an amazing work in this church, and I want to challenge you, keep it going. Keep it going. You, you have been such a blessing to this church, and keep it up. We praise God for you and for the ways that he has provided through you. And there's just so much to be thankful for. I gotta stop because we're almost out of time, but I could go on for an hour about the different ways that God has uniquely provided for this body. It is such a blessing. So it is not all about the money. Don't, don't hear me stand up here and say, oh, we just gotta give, give, give till it hurts. That's not what I'm saying to you. I'm praising God for his work of grace. And I give you the same encouragement Paul gave to the Corinthians. I encourage you to excel in this act of grace. Let's pray. Father, anytime we discuss our resources or your resources that you've entrusted to us, it can be uncomfortable because our money is so closely tied to our heart and we invest in the things that we feel are important. And God, I, I pray for all of us here in this room. All of us are at slightly different places and different experience, different levels of income and all those kinds of things. But that, that is not the main point. We are united together as your children because of Christ. And now I, I don't ask that everyone would double their giving. That's not the point. I just pray that you'd give us grace to be faithful to you. You own everything. You have promised to care for us. And the theme that we've seen over these last eight months has been your faithfulness to keep your word. So when we read, God, that you will provide for what we need according to your riches in Christ, when we read that you will complete what you started, when we read that you will never leave us or forsake us, God, we cling to those promises and pray that you'd give us faithfulness. We don't want to stray. We don't want to be faithless. We don't want to doubt what you're able to do. Even if we just look back a month, we see the un unthinkable demonstration of your generosity towards us. So don't let us become a forgetful people. Help us to remember your grace and to allow that to motivate us to be generous to one another. Thank you for this congregation. Thank you for their willingness to engage in this kind of ministry, God. And I pray a blessing on this church that you would continue to lead us. We're, we're coming into a season where there will be many opportunities for distraction. Keep us focused on the gospel 
and on the word of God that we would live soberly and righteously and justly in this present age. God, give us strength to do this. And we praise you for all of your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen.